Praise the Lord. What a great privilege to open up the Scriptures together and to hear the Word of Christ recorded for us, ringing with all the authority and clarity that it contained when it was first spoken. I would encourage you to turn with me to Matthew 24 this morning. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28 will be our primary text today. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. The title of my message today is Vultures Gather. It comes from the last verse of our text today, which states, Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is dramatic imagery connoting judgment. There is a time that Jesus is proclaiming where carnage will spread across the land and it will attract the buzzards, as it were, to feed upon the evidence of God's judgment dispensed in history when He decides that He will come and all then who are there must give an account before Him. So let's stand, if you're able, with your Bible open to Matthew 24. And follow me as I read these words. Matthew 24, again, verses 15 through 28. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on, this, on a Sabbath, verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See that I have told you beforehand, so that if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or if they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of Christ. You may be seated. We've mentioned in our last message in our Matthew series that the book of Matthew Matthew can be seen as hanging on or structured around five great discourses or sermons that Jesus preach, preaches, and they have similar bookends. They open with the disciples approaching Him and asking a question or receiving His instruction. They close with a note in the, uh, literary, the, uh, by way of literary device that after these things, uh, that then there's a change of scene in the narrative, as it were. In this, the final and last great discourse, we see that judgment is the primary theme. This is, uh, these are powerful words from the one who has the authority to declare them, Jesus Christ himself. We've noted in chapter 23, seven woes have been decreed upon the scribes and Pharisees. That is, they who represent all who obstinately oppose the word of Christ and substitute his truth for their own ideas. And as the question has come then, when will these things be, namely that all of the uh, righteous blood from innocent Abel to Zechariah, son of Berechai, who was murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, that will come upon this generation. Or when Jesus has said, after his lament of Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, I tell you, he says as he's leaving the temple, uh, see, or first of all, in verse 38 of chapter 23, your house is left to you desolate. Later, he says, in verse 2 of the next chapter, he answers the disciples, You see all these, don't you? Truly I say to you that uh, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So naturally, the ominous tone and the imminent sense of judgment and danger leads the disciples to ask a question. And they ask him, When will these things be? Verse 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? 
We've noted a three-part question then there, or there in the text. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? Now, let me give you my take most directly on this question and how Christ answers it in the historical context. My, my conviction is, most directly, the answer to this question refers to the close of the age of the old covenant worship order. And that when Jesus says that this generation will experience these things, the most direct application in context is, is that some, if not most, who are hearing Jesus' own words will experience most of what is prophetically and symbolically declared throughout the course of this discourse. Now, having said that, let me hasten to add, there is imminent application for our day right now. The Word of God, though, in its precise fulfillment of specific prophecies, takes place at a specific time. It is recorded for all time because when conditions similar to the ones that were incurred at this time plague us right now, we can go for refuge, for clarity, for principle, for hope, for direction, for application to the very same scriptures. So this morning's message will note a few of the uh, fulfillments in history, but perhaps most of our time will be spent on what can we take in lessons and application from Christ's words in our experience today. The last great discourse in Matthew's gospel signals a seismic shift in redemptive history marked by signal events. Seismic, meaning earth-shattering. Significant, a hinge of history is about to turn. We see through the course of events that history is a linear progression of God's foreordained sovereign decree. He decreed at a particular time to create man, at a particular time to institute the age of the prophets and the worship of the old covenant. And at the fullness of time, as the word of God prescribes, the son of God was incarnate and he became a man. And at the perfect time, he took on the burden of our sin and was crucified on Calvary. And three days, as prophesied, went by and he rose miraculously from the dead. And 40 days, by God's eternal decree, he, uh, 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 he preached uh, uh, between his death and then he was ascended into glory. There he sits at the right hand of God even this day in the true tent, as Hebrews 8 tells us, was the place ultimately where the high priest inhabits the place of God's favor, making intercession for you and me. There is coming a day in redemptive history yet to come where a final judgment will ensue and everyone will give an account for his deeds in this life. But there are in history other comings, if you will, of the Lord or points in time where God comes, he shows up on the scene of history, and he demonstrates his authority by a particular generation, sometimes a people, sometimes a nation, a city, must bow, must be forced to bow before his arrival on the scene of history. And I submit to you that Matthew 24 and 25 and 23 even proclaim one of those times. But it's not the first time. There are other times in the Old Testament. We will see one uh, that was prophesied in the day of Jeremiah. It was also attended by destruction, cataclysmic events. It has happened all through the course of history where God demonstrates His power by intervening for His namesake in both salvation for His people and judgment on the wicked. Now, under these conditions, the Bible records and Jesus proclaims that sparks will fly as powers clash, as Daniel's 70 weeks come to fruition. This is a prophecy of old that is being fulfilled even before the eyes of those who are hearing Christ's words at this time. Now, according to one author who wrote early 1900s, J.C. Ryle, this should come as no surprise to us. He writes the following, The ending of a dispensation given with so much solemnity at Mount Sinai might well be expected to be marked with particular solemnity. Now, let me uh, give you a little translation of that more highbrow English, if you will. Do you remember at Mount Sinai when Moses received the law? It came in a demonstration of God's power where earthquakes, or where there was an earthquake and lightning and huge trumpet blasts of noise that filled the sky. In other words, it was a seismic shift in redemptive history at the time of the giving of the law. 
J.C. Ryle says, well, we can just as easily, we can easily imagine then at the time where that era of God's uh, revelation closes that something similar might happen, and indeed that is the case. And Ryle goes on to, uh, to give us this explanation. He says, the destruction of the holy temple where so many old saints had seen shadows of good things to come might well be expected to form a subject of prophecy, and so it was. The Lord Jesus specially predicts the desolation of, quote, the holy place. The great high priest, that would be Jesus Christ, describes the end of the dispensation which had been put in charge to lead people to himself. So Ryle says that Jesus himself is proclaiming in no uncertain terms, in fact, cataclysmic events, the close of an age, the close of the temple and the temple order, which proclaimed and announced his arrival on the scene, would be a chapter that would have a grand finale, as it were, actually in judgment and destruction, and that those who looked for his arrival would now know for sure that he was there. In fact, all eyes that, or everyone who had eyes to see, would find that the arrival of Christ on the scene of history demonstrates His power not just in His sacrificial death and mercy on the cross, but also in His two-edged sword which can come and level the people that refuse to believe that His authority is is such that He is indeed King of Kings. The devastating consequences of continuing the old covenant order Oblivious to, oblivious to its fulfillment in Christ is extremely dramatic. These consequences will be felt in pangs of, a, of apocalyptic destruction. Uh, thus, the decisive closing of this chapter in history is marked by circling buzzards, by vultures, over the bodies that did not heed the words of Jesus Christ. Many have tried to portray Christ as a real turn of events in the course of history. The God who is so pronounced in His clarity, black and white judgments, and so, uh, and so angry in the uh, obstinance and unfaithfulness of His people, such that whole people groups might be slaughtered if they would not obey Him, has now suddenly uh, settled down. He's subdued, has He not? We sometimes hear. And now the New Testament opens with a kinder, gentler uh, God. We like this new tone that we sometimes imagine we read of in the New Testament. Well, if you actually read the New Testament cover to cover, you see that uh, nothing of the kind. In fact, you do see God's mercy and grace, but if your eyes are open, you see that in the Old Covenant as well. If you have not seen how God was gracious to King David, though he was a great sinner in the Old Covenant, your eyes are not open to see the gospel in God's Word. If you do that the righteous God who rules in the heavens dispenses at His perfect time and place and with perfect justice His judgments on those who deny Him. And it is His right and prerogative to do so. You don't understand the Lord of glory. But when your eyes are open to see the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Old Covenant and and the New, and the justice of a mighty God in the Old Covenant and the New, you begin to rejoice. You don't do so with some kind of light-hearted fuzzies like I feel so good to be coddled by a celestial teddy bear. But instead, you do so with a sense of weighty fear of the Lord, that this is someone before whom I bow because He controls my eternal destiny. destiny. And if it wasn't for His grace and His mercy, I would incur, incur the sword of His wrath. But because He has extended to me in His loving kindness the way of salvation through His slain Son, I will forever bring my votive offering, my offering of thankfulness before Him because He has saved my soul. The response that the Word of God demands from those who truly understand it in its themes. The heading for today's message is simply three themes through judgment. And I see three themes in this section, verses 15 through 28 of Matthew 24. First of all, prophecy. God's judgment comes prophetically. It's been announced of old, it's been fulfilled now, and in, and in the context of that framework, we see that God indeed is sovereign. He proves so in the course of history in that His prophecies are coming to perfect and exact fulfillment. Second theme through judgment we see in our text today is preparation. The Lord is gracious enough to prepare His people to endure the judgment that will come. And thirdly, this morning, providence. 
We see the sovereignty of God in arranging circumstances even beyond the prophecy that he records in his word, beyond the preparation of his people for these events. We see it in every single detail and aspect of recorded history. So we will uh, reference a few of those points in the context of our uh, text today as well. First of all, first theme through judgment, prophecy. Let me turn our attention to the referent or that to which the text refers prophetically. First of all, the immediate context. Reading again Matthew 24, 15, Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And this parenthetical statement, let the reader understand, which we'll touch on a little bit more later, is a note that there is understanding or an attention that is required of something that has been written previously. In other words, this is not an arbitrary event that is unfolding before you. This is not just a chaotic cause and effect relationship of a universe of, you know, a pinball machine full of molecules. This is something that is by God's sovereign design that he has recorded in advance. So let the reader of Daniel, in other words, understand, take heed. There is going to be a fulfillment of what he has written about. Also, I would have us note in chapter 23, Jesus has already used the term desolation to introduce this judgment passage. He says again in verse 38, See your house is left to you desolate. But that declaration has been preceded by this verse. Verse 37 of chapter 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That note there, the conditional promise is that for those who will testify with the children of the temple in chapter 21 the author recorded earlier or with the crowds that welcomed him at the triumphal entry for those who testify blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord the visitation of the king of kings will be one of favor and one of glory and rejoicing but for those who do not confess that jesus is the king that he is the lord that he is the Messiah prophesied of old, that he holds the future and their destiny in his hands, for them, they will not see him in that way. Yes, they will see his visitation. They will see his coming. But they will not see his coming as one of a welcome entry as the king who will save them, but instead as the judge of all the earth who is bringing forth his righteous decree and slaughtering those in one fell swoop so that the vultures will testify that Jesus is Lord as they circle around the great carnage of the temple and Jerusalem destruction, again, as I see it most directly fulfilled in the events of A.D. 70. That era in history, uh, historians have said it's the most well-attested event of all of ancient history outside of what is recorded in the Word of God. In God's providence, Josephus and others recorded, and uh, Titus and, you know, the Roman emperors and so on that were involved with those circumstances recorded the demise of Jerusalem. It happened with all sorts of magnificent uh, uh, display of God's power to intervene in history to bring a day of reckoning upon a people who are obstinately opposed to his message. And so when this happened, their house, that is the temple or the place of favor that the Jews thought they enjoyed with the Lord would be left to them desolate. So that is the referent then for verse 15, the immediate context. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus had declared then that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. The disciples asked, When will these things be? Jesus answered, when you see the abomination that leads to desolation, you will know that those days are upon you. Now let's go to Daniel, which is the second referent. In Daniel chapter 9, we have this record, and again, prophecy can be a little enigmatic. It's mysterious sometimes to us. 
But as we see the biblical connections and if we apply a good hermeneutic, that is letting the Bible interpret the Bible, these prophecies can really come alive with dramatic power. Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. Notice what God will accomplish during this time. First of all, to finish the transgression. Secondly, to put an end to sin. Thirdly, to atone for iniquity. Fourthly, to bring everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal both vision and prophet. And six, to anoint a most holy place. What does that sound like to you, if not the completed work of Christ? His work and ministry on this earth culminating in the cross and his ascension. It says now in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. This language dovetails well with the prophecy of uh, Matthew 24. Jesus will come as a prince, as a ruler, as it were. This seven-week time frame designation, if you assign each week as seven years, then we can see in 49 years there's a shift, and then after that, 62 weeks, uh, it shall be built again in the squares and the moats, but in a troubled time. And as we go through and in more detailed study, which we don't have time for today, we can see milestones through the record of the prophets of where it was commissioned for the people to return and build the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And to this, the author, or Daniel prophesies, the prophet speaks. He says it will be built again with squares and moats, but in troubled times. And then after the 62 weeks, and so if we uh, mark the time through the intertestamental period, we have roughly, as far as we can figure, uh, um, the anointed one Christ arriving on the scene. It says, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So now we have a conflict, as it were, between two princes or two authorities. And there'll be destruction of that city that was built. So Jerusalem and the temple are in view here. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for a half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So interesting language indeed. But I just want to draw your attention most specifically to the opening of this prophecy and the close. At the opening, what will be accomplished through these 70 weeks? Finishing a finality of transgression, an end to sin, atonement for iniquity, everlasting righteousness secured, and a seal of vision and profit. I mean, that would uh, denote a fulfillment of what had been spoken of old. A climax, a seismic shift, if you will, in redemptive history, as we mentioned. And anoint a most holy place, which could well refer to Hebrews 8, chapter 2. The new holy place, the true tent, where Jesus dwells in glory, making intercession for us. That temple language picked up in fulfillment, the author of Hebrews expounds. And then the close of this, day, of this 70 week uh, uh, pro prophecy in Daniel speaks to another event. On the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. If we turn back to Matthew 24, Jesus uses that point of reference prophetically to declare what something of what is about to happen. So when you see the abomination of desolation, again, words of Daniel, on the wings of this abomination, this place, the temple, and the, in the uh, general proximity will be rendered desolate. When you see this abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So there we see some of the prophetic context of what's happening in this judgment. It has uh, been spoken of old. When these events transpired, those who truly believed Jesus to be a prophet would be able to recognize what was going on. They were recognizing his power to declare these things even now. Those uh, whose hearts were illuminated by the Holy Spirit would take careful note and would not forget what he has spoken here. And thus, when the sacrifices in the temple continued 
even though Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice, had come, as Hebrews 7.27 declares that he did this, namely atone for sins once and for all, when he offered up himself, the, the believers, the Christians, would understand every sacrifice that took place in the temple after the cross was an absolute abomination. And on, this wing, and on these wings of abominations, as it were, the sacrifice is each one declaring that the sufficient one has not come yet, that the Messiah has not arrived, the judgment of God would take note. And on that day of his choosing, he would come and he would, with the snap of his divine fingers of judgment, put an end to that heresy once and for all. No more animal sacrifices would be slain on that altar. And all the world would see by God's sovereign hand that the once and for all sacrifice had come. And any place and anywhere you go and anyone you confess and any religious idea outside of Jesus Christ is desolation. It's an abomination that leads to desolation. Brothers and sisters, there is yet an abomination that leads to desolation that plagues the human heart today. What is it? It's the same, not acknowledging the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ the Messiah, born in time, satisfying the terms and conditions of redemption on the cross of Calvary. Any denial of that fact, any substitute of anything else, any hope vested in any other Messiah is an abomination. And it leads to the desolation of hell. It leads to the lostness of the human heart. In these historical events, we have a metaphor of the gospel. Only in Christ is there atonement for sin. Only in Christ is his justice satisfied and his mercy freely dispensed. Only in that once and for all sacrifice does our hope ultimately hinge. This is a theme in judgment. It's a reference to the prophecies of old that Jesus draws our attention to. Secondly, I would have you note a theme in judgment related to prophecy is a term, I just use the, the idea of recapitulation. Recapitulation is a repetition of principal stages or phases. The Bible is the inspired word of God, and I never tire of showing you ways that that is manifest. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah to note another one of them today, chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. As judgments have been proclaimed of old, where the temple was destroyed, God's people were exiled, in particular, Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he was declaring these events would happen. In Jeremiah chapter 7, we see a prophecy that almost mirrors idea for idea Matthew 24. Notice with me as we read the fingerprint of divine revelation all over the word of God. The word that came to Jeremiah from of old, 7-1. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Where is Jeremiah proclaiming his word? In the gate of the Lord's house. Where has Jesus Christ, or what is the occasion of Jesus' pronunciation of judgment in Matthew 23 and 24? Again, it's the gate of the Lord's house. He says, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. So again, the, the temple is the object to which the prophet refers, and it's the point of reference for what he is about to declare, he says, verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. It's a call for repentance. Do not trust in these deceptive words. Note carefully, verse 4. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you repeat, if you stand on something, it's just, if, it, if the temple of the Lord is just a rote idea to you, if it's a vain repetition, if you just say, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, without acknowledging its purpose, its intent, and its meaning, it is no refuge for you. Where can refuge be found? Confessing your sins, submitting to God, and understanding what the temple sacrifices represented. Such is the same, uh, or the conditions are the same in Jesus' day. People are taking refuge in the temple. The scribes and the Pharisees claim to be the experts of the temple order. 
They will go across land and sea to make a single proselyte for their religious ideas. They will swear by the temple and so on. But Jesus declares to them in so many words and seven woes what Jeremiah declared of old. Woe to those, that is to say, that, uh, who, who trust in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Amend your ways and deeds. As we continue to read, the author moves past this idea or stage or phase of uh, Judah's vainglory and confidence in a mere temple. And verses 5 through 11 continue with a new theme. And here it's documented where they have sinfully broken God's laws. And they have rendered the temple a den of iniquity. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, verse 6 again, Jeremiah 7, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? What are they? Blasphemers. What is this? It's an abomination. What will it lead to? Desolation. Again, he says, verse 10, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on and do all these, there's the word, abominations. Verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? This ought to remind us of what Jesus has already proclaimed in Matthew 21. What did he do in this chapter? Verse 12, he entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats who sold pigeons, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You see here, there's a recapitulation of the Jeremiah 7 prophecy. God's uh, people have, uh, are apostate, blind, and obstinate. And now they are repeating the same conditions that they once fell into in their deception all the way back in Jeremiah's time. Again, Jeremiah continues in verse 30 and 32, or uh, 24 through 28, by stopping their ears to the prophets. Uh, we see this, says, uh, but they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels in the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward, not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants and prophets to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. What does this remind us of related to our text? Well, remember what we have recently read, the final woe in chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying that if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we, have, would, have not, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. You witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your prophets, of your fathers, excuse me, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you would kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, and so on. If you continue through this chapter, you see in, cha in verses, in, that is in Jeremiah 7, you see in verses 30 through 32, the abomination that eventually bring, brings desolation. In uh, verse 33 through chapter 8, verse 3, you see the devastating scope of judgment, and in the end, the vultures are gathering, even in this passage, uh, all the way back. He says in verse 33, the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. Sounds like desolation, does it not? Sounds like Matthew 24, 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So prophecy is a theme that is recapitulated through these judgments where we see the mark of God in history. When his people fall away, they're not smart, they're not progressive, they're not innovative, they're not new and improved. They're stupid dogs returning to their own vomit. 
They reject the truth and they fall back into the same old patterns of rebellion. And what do they deserve under these conditions but judgment? And during this time, when the word is being proclaimed, there is opportunity to repent. But it must be declared to them that they stand in desperate need of God's grace. Otherwise, they will be destroyed and soon they will be buzzard food. Thirdly, under prophecy, there is a call to sobriety. This is very important for us as well. Jesus says, let the reader understand in this parenthetical statement in Matthew 24, 15. He echoes a repeated refrain in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, again in chapter 9, if you turn back just briefly with me there, I have you flipping back and forth a lot today. I think it's helpful for the context of our passage, however. We see in Daniel 9 the correct attitude that we ought to have when considering these weighty truths. In Daniel 9, verse 22, it says, He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. So Daniel has been granted sovereignly this supernatural insight and understanding. And Jesus is saying, he's calling his readers, those who would read Daniel, and indeed this gospel, Matthew 24, to the same standard of understanding and sobriety. Take careful note. He says in verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Verse 25, therefore, uh, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. I just take note of that repeated exhortation in the prophetic context because it is so woefully violated these days. When people consider the future, they consider biblical prophecy, there is seldom a careful, studious, disciplined application of biblical uh, attention and study paid to the events that they are considering. Instead, it's much more popular to offer wild-eyed speculation. Uh, There's uh, a a podcaster that uh, has coined the term narcissus. It's so common in the American church to read yourself into the text. Instead of exegesis, where you draw out what the Word of God says, narcissus is reading yourself into the text. How does this, what does this have to do with me? Where, I, where can I be found here? Where is America in the Bible? Um, what is the significance of my life, this generation, these current events? It, it can, we can easily lose our perspective with a self-absorbed focus. How can we avoid that? We can take heed to the message of Scripture, to make, pay careful attention to the context. And a couple of things that you can note along these lines is for instance, the genre of apocalyptic or prophetic-type literature. Before you make those wild-eyed speculative uh, books like, you know, 84 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1984, maybe I'm mixing that up with a dystopian novel, I don't know. But all of it becomes a mess, really, unless we pay close attention to the Word of God. What we find is there are specific categories and ways of speaking that are unique to Scripture. We must play, pay disciplined attention to them. Note the cosmic decreation language, if you will. Stars and moons falling and things turning to blood. And note the historical context in which those things were fulfilled. Note where the author uses hyperbole, that is, speaking in ways that uh, uh, sort of exaggerate the situation, not in a way to mischaracterize the events, but instead as a literary device to draw the attention of the reader to the sobriety of the moment. These are just some helpful hints for us that we should note when we are studying passages of Scripture like this. Look at the reference in the rest of Scripture. Take into account where the Old Testament has spoken and uh, reinforce the ideas, and then pay close attention with wisdom and sobriety to what is being described. Second major theme through judgment, and more briefly this morning, preparation. When we get back to our text today in Matthew 24, we see the grace of God through the proclamation of judgment offered to His people and giving them special instructions. Verse 16, And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. Pausing there. The houses were shaped like, you know, squarish, made of stone, and oftentimes, especially in hot days, people would recline on the housetop. If you saw an event like an an invading army, 
uh, on the horizon, you know, the idea is don't even go into your house to grab your belongings, but run down that stairway and head straight for the hills. Similarly, he says in verse 18, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. This is significant. Remember in the book of Amos, again, a little historical or a little Old Testament correlation for you. In the book of Amos, the creditors are judged, they are condemned because they have held people's cloaks as collateral for a loan. But what they've done is they've actually held just about all of their livelihood of the poor. Uh, the cloak is very expensive and very important to the individual, represented a fortune for him if he, didn't, if he wasn't a man of wealthy means. So if you weren't going to return to get your cloak, that means the situation is so dire and the emergency is such that don't even you know, grab your wallet off the top of your dresser, just hightail it out of there, verse 19. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. He says, verse 20, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. This would indicate something of the uh, temporal order of the Old Covenant as well, and also the seasons. In other words, pray that when this event happens, because it will be so sudden and so drastic, that you will have safe passage to immediately take flight. Verse 21, for, there, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. First of all, in under preparation, those who were saved from this event heeded the words of Christ. How did the early Christians recognize what was going on and respond? They did so when they heeded the words of Jesus. This is an application for all times. Though we may not be staring down the barrel of an encroaching, invading army that might uh, you know, lay siege to the city of Cross Lake anytime soon, nevertheless, in any age, in any day of crisis, we must pay heed to the word of Christ. And His word prepares us for the day of difficulty. Within these texts are timeless truths for us to remember. Things like, in an age of lawlessness, where lawlessness and anarchy against the Lord increases, the love of many will grow cold. So when God's word is questioned by more and more people, when it is less and less popular, shore yourself up in your most holy faith. This is a way that we can be prepared. In the historical context, the author... Uh, actually, the translator of Josephus, the Jewish historian who recorded the historic events, which most directly relate to our text today, he includes an interesting note. This is William Winston, Josephus' translator, writing in The Wars of the Jews. He says, there may, another, there, or there may another very important and very providential reason be here assigned for this strange and foolish retreat of Cestius. And just the context is that the invading armies had circled Jerusalem. But there was a brief respite where they began to retreat for a brief period of time. A turn of events that were unexplainable on the surface of things. If you had not taken the heed, taken heed to the word of Christ, if you were ready to take your stand in the temple as a zealot opposing the pagan armies, you would have thought, they're retreating, they're retreating, let's chase them down. The Lord is giving us the victory. The Christians did not uh, succumb to that temptation or impulse. Instead, they did something different. It says, which if Josephus had, now, had been now a Christian, he might probably have taken notice of also, and that is the affording the Jewish Christians in the city an opportunity to calling to mind the predictions and caution given them by Christ about 33 and a half years before that when they should see the abomination of desolation, quote, or in brackets, the idolatrous Roman armies with the images of their idols in their ensigns, ready to lay Jerusalem desolate, stand where it ought not, or in the holy place, or, quote, when they should see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, they should then, quote, flee to the mountains. By complying with, so, uh, with which those Jewish Christians fled to the mountains, of Perea and escaped this destruction. Nor was there perhaps any one instance of a more unpolitic, more providential conduct than this treat of Cestius. He's saying it didn't make any sense. 
why the army would retreat when they had the upper hand. It was an absolute sovereign turn of events, visible during this whole siege of Jerusalem, which yet was providentially such a, quote, great tribulation as had not been from the beginning of the world to that time, nor ever should be. So we see in the record of history then something very interesting. The Christians were able to put aside their nationalistic impulse and listen to the word of God. And when God provided them the window of opportunity, they escaped to the hills. May we heed the word of God today. Are there any experiences or conditions that would apply to us? Is there a temptation to double down on nationalistic impulses? To trust armies, movements, uh, warfare campaigns, policies, or individuals, candidates, presidential, you know, wannabes who would promise great and grandiose things, but would at systematically at every turn deny, compromise, belittle, contravene the word of Christ? Where ought we stand? Heed the word of Christ. We, might, we may not be called to put spatial proximity between us and the pagan, that is, run away by means of miles or distance. But we are always to keep our distance from the ungodly and from the best ideas and well-laid plans of men who disregard God's word. Keep your distance from such things. Keep your distance as Lot was called to do in Sodom, Genesis 19, 4 through 29. The Lot did not do so at first. He lived within the cities. It took a sovereign hand of the angels to extricate uh, Cage him from, from that environment and, and to lead him to safety. And the message for him was, is don't fellowship among the wicked and the ungodly. Don't find your identity and communion in a society that is wholly abandoning the word of Christ and embracing abominations. Why? Because in the end, it will lead to desolation. Do not partake in the wickedness around you. Instead, distance yourself from it by being a light. By being a light. Can you think of any circumstances where this applies to us today? Absolutely. We are in the world, but not of it. We are to distance ourselves from the world in this sense. Come out from the world, be separate from among them, shine as a light in darkness. Don't let the salt lose its savor. If it does, it is worth so much gravel to be trodden underfoot. Don't lose your savor. Be distinct. Stand with Christ, and you will not be overcome in an age of lawlessness. Under preparation, not only are God's people called to heed the word of Christ and to keep their distance, but also to discern imposters. There will be false Christ, false ideas that will be very popular, but they must be, have their spiritual ear tuned to recognize truth from falsehood. In, in verse 22 we read, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will, the coming of the, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Evil opportunists uh, never waste a crisis. You familiar with that phrase, never waste a crisis? In an age where God's word has become, again, increasingly unpopular and wickedness is more palatable to the average ear, there are forces that move into that void of righteousness and they seek to exploit it to their ends. The wicked flock like vultures to feed on the decaying matter of a dying society. They will flock in trying times and in dying cultures to capitalize on and to feed on fear and the spoils and the anarchy seeking to deceive, to despoil, and to destroy and this was, such, or this was exactly one of those times that the believers were going to face. But Jesus prepares them for it. While he proclaims judgment, he does so at the same time as preparing his people for difficult times. It's interesting that he seems to spend far more time preparing them not to uh, endure martyrdom, 
you know, in other words, uh, you might be killed. Be careful because the chains are going to be slapped on your wrists. Uh, but instead, there's, it seems that the most attention is paid to the mind. Do not be deceived. Be careful. Uh, it doesn't matter so much that your body be killed. But if you are deceived in your soul, then there is hell to pay, as it were. So heed the word of Christ. Keep your distance from evil and discern impostors. Beware, because in trying times, in times where the world seems to be crumbling around us, there can be spectacular claims by persuasive people that fill up the ether and are advertised all over the place. They will call from obscure places and religious niches, uh, claiming a monopoly on signs and wonders. Uh, believers are easily susceptible to being convinced by spectacular claims to supernaturalism under these conditions. Brothers and sisters, we could easily be led astray by those who claim signs and wonders. They claim to have a, a, a key and a handle on a secret way to understand or to get us through. Be careful, false Christs and false prophets will arise and will perform great signs and wonders, and so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. This call to attention should not make us uh, tremble in, uh, in desperate fear, but instead to quake with the fear of the Lord and then return to His Word. What a great time for God's people to pour over the Scriptures, knowing that they were going, going to be in a testing period in the near future. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, let us heed the advice, the exhortation for us this day. If you find the day and age that we are living in, as I do, increasingly troubling and increasingly trying, take heed to the scriptures and let your discernment be finely tuned to recognize the voice of an imposter from the voice of those who truly proclaim the only Christ. And finally, this morning, let us touch briefly on providence. This is a theme through judgment as well. We don't have time to touch upon it at length today, but there is inadvertent prophecy that was proclaimed in John 11, verses 45 through 53. You could study that perhaps on your own time this week. After Jesus had healed Lazarus, he had been resurrected from the dead. Then the Pharisees thought to themselves, the religious leaders, we better put this man down. Otherwise, you know, the Romans might take over our country or... Uh, you know, he might uh, deceive and lead all the people after him and so on. And, you know, the high priest at that time said that it is right that one man should die for the people, not even realizing that he was prophesying the act of atonement that would soon come when Christ went to the cross. So we see acts of providence in and through this time of judgment that reinforce this fact. God, the Almighty, is in control. This is so important to recognize. In the day where things seem to be falling apart, one of the lies most easy to believe is that God has lost control of the circumstances. Look carefully and see in the scriptures where in the midst of great tumult, God is sovereign. And he demonstrates that in providentially moving in the course of history to make his mighty name known. He does it in times of judgment as well as salvation. Notice the providence of God and even the duration of the difficulties that were soon to come. Matthew 24, 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. There's a providential act of God in the course of this judgment. There's a duration and a time frame that God puts on it. The people and the age deserved more than they actually got. In His sovereign mercy, God withheld to some degree the judgment that was deserved. Why did he do it? He did it because he loved his people. He loves his people and he preserves them. For the sake of the elect, he will design, he will shift the uh, parts and pieces of history to accomplish his great ends and to assure your salvation. This is a reassuring thought and promise indeed, which raises the question, how might we steward God's patience. If there is any time between a nation, a people, an era, an age, a generation, between when they have committed great abominations and when the judgment and desolation finally comes, what ought God's people do during that time? Preach the gospel. Make it known. 
call out, perhaps there are more of the elect that yet reside in Jerusalem, as it were, before Titus finally comes with his armies to invade. Uh, Aaron sent me on text thread the, uh, yesterday a little video of an abortion clinic doctor, uh, in quotes, doctor in quotes, an abortionist confronted by a believer. It's just 30 seconds long. It's one of the most dramatic exchanges I've ever seen in this pagan culture. This man simply said, you're a killing baby, sir. You must repent or you'll be judged for your sin. And the, abortion, uh, and the abortionist began to manifest. I was kind of trying to read his eyes and what he was intending to do. And it seemed to me, first of all, he was going to try to mess with the guy, uh, just to throw him off as if he were annoyed. But as he did so, an unmistakably demonic reaction was uttered from him. And he began to say, I will never stand with Christ. He says, I love killing babies. It was one of the most dramatic things I've seen captured in our culture to date. And it reminded me of something. The blood guilt of millions is on the hands of our nation this day. The judgment that we deserve is more than, if it could be said, the judgment that was deserved at this age. I can't say that for certain, but it would seem to me the atrocities of our day rival the abominations that are written of in Matthew 24. Christ is still on the throne. He still wields the sword of justice, but he has tarried for his elect's sake among us. How ought we steward that time? Call out, brothers and sisters, in that simple proclamation of repentance and faith. Tell people their sin and tell people that salvation can be found in Jesus Christ. Turn to the Prince of Peace. Turn to the King of Kings. Confess your sin and He will wash your blood guilt away in His own blood. I don't know how many children that doctor has eviscerated with the knives of his own serial destruction. I don't know how many he has cut and dismembered from the womb and sent across the land like the book of Judges of old in our day. But one thing I do know, a single drop of my Savior's blood is powerful enough to wash that guilt away. And my Savior's blood washed my sins away. And it washed your sins away if you trust Him today. And that is the message a dying culture that is ripe for judgment needs to hear. Let us stand with Christ. And let us proclaim, finally, let us remember that everything is within God's sovereign decree. I want to close simply by reading a couple verses from Isaiah. Turn there with me in closing, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 45. The prophets of old, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they were told to prophesy even though God told them right at the beginning of their ministry they would never plant a church or grow a church because the hard hearts of the people would be obstinate to the word of God. Yet there was value in what they proclaimed because they brought the glory of God forward to the people and indeed their words were recorded for us and they stir in us a sense of where ought we turn and what ought we or where should we stake our claim in a day of similar deserving judgment. We read some verses like this in Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 7. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Let us close in prayer. O Father, we thank you that you rule and reign over this universe and that your hand is not disconnected from the events that are laid out before us and happen in time. Indeed, nothing escapes your sovereignty. 
We take refuge in there in that great assurance today. I pray that you would equip us, Lord, like you did your early church, to endure extraordinary tribulation. Father, we may not find ourselves in the exact same place. We may find ourselves in very similar circumstances. One thing we do know, however, is regardless of your plan for our life, your word is a sufficient source to strengthen us and equip us to stand, not only defensively, but indeed offensively, as you declared in this prophecy that your word would go forth unto all nations and then the end would come. Father, it is just like you, you and your sovereignty to take ground in an age where your people are slaughtered. We thank you for these truths. We pray, Lord, that you would bind us together, Lord, in unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, to stand as a church unified behind the message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Let us not be afraid to proclaim your judgments, but Lord, let us in the same breath offer your mercies and point to the cross of Calvary, the only place where we can be ransomed and redeemed and the love of Christ can be shed abroad in our hearts because on that cruel implement of execution, our sin was atoned for by the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is in that precious name we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.